morning! This is Felicia Day, King of Forrester from MST3K and author of Embrace Your Weird. I'll see you in the future. Push the button, Steve! Hey, welcome to Sandwiches at Irregular Hours, episode 154 for March 9th, 2021. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hassenflow. And I'm Pam Bedore. And we are in the middle of one of the universes. Boy, these, there's so many universes, guys. We, th- is this the prime universe? Are we? Are, are, is this? Is this normal? Where's normal? Isn't normal? What's normal? I don't know anymore. What, which which Clark can am I? I don't know. <laughs> We're in the middle of reading Rassle by Jeff Smith. This was published, well, the, the story part that we're reading today was published between 2009 and 2010 when we switched our verbiage from 2009 to 2010. I, I loved that for that time period when we didn't know what to call the year. Twenty-aught nine? Is that what it was? <laughs> Back in six. I tell my students that all the time. They're going to be the grandparents that are telling stories about Back in six. You got. You don't understand. <laughs> Rassel is uh, a multi-universe, multi-layered story. We've got so many interesting things happening in this segment. We get to oh boy, a lot of conspiracy talk here, huh? We got a lot of background on Nikola Tesla, the Philadelphia experiment from World War II, magnetic fields, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. It's Anything you throw out there, Jeff Smith wants to let you know that it's there. And we get this interesting scene where there's a, a flashback to the summer before our two characters here started high school. Robert, who we find out, by the way, that Rassel has a name. His name is Robert. And the scientist who he was working with, Miles, they knew each other the summer before high school started. And they were conspiracy nuts going to the library. Kids, the library is a place that we went to to find information before the World Wide Web. They went to the library that <laughs> summer, and they looked into some of these ideas about UFOs and, and Tesla trying to make sense of their world. I think a, a lot of people at that age are trying to make sense of the things that they don't know and maybe trying to find a pattern. So my, my concern yeah. about bringing that up that way is Tesla was a scientist. He's a real man who had real work and real patents. And certainly there was a lot of conspiracy surrounded him because he was such a prominent figure that sort of has been written out of history in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and has this, this mythos around him. I mean, we have a car company named Tesla. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, as Pam so well no- you know, noted, there was a you know, rock band that had uh, <laughs> a name Tesla. Yes. I-, I wasn't rec- recommending the rock band Tesla. I'm just noting their existence. Because poison is so much better. <laughs> In the glam band world. But guys, let me ask. So it's so fascinating that these two main characters are interested in conspiracy. What do you guys think is the appeal of conspiracy theory, just in general? A a lot of it is this idea that, I mean, I think conspiracies come down to 
I'm going to go, I'm going to go even deeper. I'm going to mess up Alan Moore's thought on it because I really think he grabbed it real well. Uh, at some point when you're young, you think that um, older people have this super knowledge and there's this control of the world and the way it works and how we all put together. He goes, but as you get older, you may become more comfortable with the idea that no one's in charge of anything. And um, there's a lot of decisions to get made that just get made. And we look at, for expertise and things like that. But, you know, at some point, decisions kind of get made. But this idea that someone is potentially maliciously doing something to harm other people for, for some kind of benefit. And, I mean, it, it shows up and people rioting you know, going to the Capitol because there's, there's, they feel that something was being wrong because, you know, maybe the uh, election wasn't counted correctly. Something is being hidden from them. There's their ignorance of something leads them to a belief that there's gotta be an answer and maybe there's just not an answer. Well, how how about, you know, the, the anti-vaxxers who many of them are very, they're learned people. They, College educated graduates certainly should know better, but certainly are struggling to think of how humans could put together a desire to solve something mm-hmm. and could solve it. Ignorance. They just don't know. So I like that epistemological perspective on conspiracy, that it's really about like how we frame and construct knowledge. Do you think there's also a psychological explanation about in-groups and out-groups? Yes, and 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 that human desire to be in the know, to be in the in group and not in the out group, and that feeling that I have often that I'm always in the out group. Uh, that yeah, <laughs> and, so, and these two things might very well be connected, right? This desire to know something that most people don't, and there's also you know when when we're looking at and I don't want to call this a superhero narrative, but there's a little bit of that going on, I think. Um, we have a very unusual main character who has an ability that the rest of us don't have. And that person's tapping into this conspiracy, this, this different way of looking at the world. And I think when we look at Russell and Sal, and I think it's maybe not an accident that they have the same letters in their two little short form names. Hmm. You know, we have this, this sense that they're very different from anyone else. And so we're not 100% sure where that's going, but there's like an insider outsider element to that, I would think. Should, should we bring up the point that through the story, we're eventually told that Rassel, Robert, and Sal, Imander. So, yeah, the, the, the lizard guy. They are the only <laughs> beings of, of their personal, you know, of the persons throughout all the timelines, all, or not the timelines, but the alternate universes. Yeah, I love this quote where Sal says to Rassel, ever wonder why you've never met yourself on one of these little trips? Why we are the only ones your scientists say it's because we subsume the person who is us on a new world i'll tell you what i think it's because none of this is real 
It's a mirage. Sal is in the conspiracy mind of Elon Musk thinking that what he is experiencing is not real. This is a simulation of some sort. So, sort of the Matrix. Uh-huh. Mr. Anderson. Mm-hmm. And this has a, a Matrixy feel to it sometimes, too, doesn't it? Although I guess I was thinking that Sal was putting himself outside of the matrix. He was saying everyone else is living in a matrix. You and I, Robert, we can actually, we live in the real world. And all of these other worlds that we interact with, when I go to some other dimension and kill your girlfriend, she wasn't even a real person. Wow. I, she I can was see just it. a simulation. And that may be the reason why he's got this, I don't know, psychotic? Is that the proper uh, term, use of the term? This this idea of like, well, he can kill all these alternate dimension girlfriends. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're not real people anyway. Has no meaning. And for Russell, for, for Robert, he's like, I'm trying to save all of these people, particularly like one of these persons that he that he has. Not, not his original girlfriend, but the one he discovered at one of the alternate universes. Hmm. And then, of course, if science fiction is a metaphor, what is it a metaphor for? And so here we think about the different ways that we value different human life, right? And I guess I just kept thinking of the climate crisis all the way through this. Really? Really, really, Pam? No, no, no. But, But all right, so a little background for the listeners. At UConn and a lot of universities, in fact, the University of Kentucky, where my daughter's attending, Climate is something that they're, they're, they're teaching outside the regular curriculum. So you could do it through your curriculum, but it just seems to be like a, a, an area that it's, it's talking. But, so this is very much plugged into you, but I'm interested in seeing how you're thinking about that through this story. Well, the question of energy, right? So like, okay. how do we, you know, how do we, how do we remake our energy grid? It's like, that's one of the biggest questions that faces us. And of course, as we all know, the reason that UConn and University of Kentucky and every university around the world mm-hmm. focused on climate change right now is it's an absolutely existential threat. And in terms of the ethics of climate change, one of the big questions is how do we value future humans and future beings of all kinds, right? So like, how do we determine the rights of those 7.5 billion of us who are alive right now versus the rights of all the billions of people that may or may not follow us depending on the decisions that we make right now. And all of this comes down to questions of energy, mm-hmm. of, of energy and of how we distribute energy. And these are questions that Tesla was obviously very much thinking about over a hundred years ago sure, and that have been like, located in a bunch of different ways and that have this is these are ideas that have been circumscribed through both conspiracy theories and through the scientific establishment and so i think to me that was really like an impetus again i have no idea what the author was thinking but as i'm reading it i'm feeling how much the climate crisis is related to all of these questions that that he's exploring it seems like, that seems like some really, I mean, some, some grand, uh, only a wealthy society that where everybody is not starving could, could really contemplate that. For but, sure. But in, on, on a grand scheme, it, it does talk a lot about, you know, what, what we'll say the West, what we have available in the West, where there's air conditioning that allows us to live in hot climates and there's um, 
abundant calories and all this other stuff. And then for areas that are emerging from that, how can you deny them the ability to have many of the luxuries that made life so, you know, allow us to have so many people living, you know? And then at the same time, knowing that the demand of that is going to be even greater, how can, you know, it's wonderful that we can move from these incandescent light bulbs to LED light bulbs, and we move from 100 watts down to one watt. Mm -hmm. that's, that's amazing. I mean, how wonderful technology is. How can you do that across the board so that we're using, not only becoming more efficient, but now we're also using our resources more um, efficiently and less destructively? Which brings us to Zen Buddhism, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> of course. Of course. Tesla was trying to make sense of the universe, just like these two characters at, in their teen years trying to make sense of the world. Tesla was doing experiments in real history, not even in a, in a different alternative universe. Real Tesla was doing real experiments to try to solve and make sense of this universe. He was trying to find the nature and meaning of electricity. We get a very interesting info dump and, and, and when I say interesting info dump, I'm being sarcastic. We get an info dump about <laughs> Tesla in part six here. And one of the things is he he thought of electricity as a, a connector of all things, like a fluid that ran through everything. You like, mean like, like, like the force, Steve? Yes, Chip. Like the force? Like the force. Like Ooh, the force, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you know, after all of my years of me telling you this, that the force is based on Zen Buddhism. The idea of the connectivity of everything. That we are all connected. There is no separation between you and me. We are all part of one thing. It's like the wave asking the other wave, what is the ocean? What is water? And the, the wave explains, we are all the ocean. We are all water. That's Zen Buddhism. And there's something to, again, our human brains wanting to make connections. Even when there are no connections to be made, our brains want that connection so badly. Humans' brains are designed to look for patterns. Mm -hmm. Even when there are no patterns, even if it's not a, something that has a pattern, we're looking for a pattern. We will force a pattern into a situation where there is no pattern. Otherwise, we can't understand it. That's even if we need a really complicated conspiracy theory to make it work. Precisely. Exactly. Oh, that's and right. that's why the midichlorians come in so helpful. Steve. Oh, don't mention midichlorians. Yeah. <laughs> moving on. Moving. We don't say that word. <laughs> the M word. The M word. <laughs> You know, one thing Russell says about Tesla after this discussion of the sort of life force through the universe mm. is Tesla understood the universe, Russell said. He just didn't understand the world. Yeah. And that, I think he means how science gets funded. <laughs> and that's so sad. <laughs> but But it's absolutely a central thought to this portion of the novel, I think, is how do you how do you actually fund scientific experiment what are the principles what is the scientist to what degree is a scientist beholden to the funding entity 
And in the United States, that is often the Department of Defense and in many parts of the world too. So military funding feels really different from university funding or private funding or whatever. But who is actually paying for your materials, not only your time, but your extremely expensive materials does become a real question. And that's what Russell says Tesla didn't understand how to do that I, part of it, how to do the I, financing. I, did, I didn't read it that way at all. I, I was basically saying that Tesla understood this esoteric part of it, but he wasn't understanding how humans work with each other. I, I was thinking it was a little more universal talk. I, I mean, I think you're correct in the sense that Tesla felt that he would be taken care of. Um, so George Westinghouse, when Westinghouse came to Tesla and said, hey, listen, the contract we signed with you is putting us under business. We can't make any money. Tesla stood up and tore up this contract, basically denying himself the security, the, the financing for the rest of his life in order to make Westinghouse finance, uh, you know, their, their um, company financially viable. When he when Tesla left and went out to Colorado, I can't remember who was funding him. I think it was J.P. Morgan, but Morgan um, wanted to own those patents, wanted to have what, what um, Tesla was working on, and basically called him out on working on side projects. And um, the side project was basically to tap into the um, the vibrations of the universe, the energy of the universe, and make, make energy universal for all. Something about and, and Chip, you you can't see how that's how he didn't understand business when you mentioned J.P. Morgan. No, J.P. Morgan was a financer. I, I, she, Pam was talking about how university funding for projects. No, no, no. Present. I'm talking about finance. I'm talking about who finances funding and why that matters. That's well, what Tesla didn't understand. I think and, and I are saying the same thing. Okay. Well, Morgan certainly was. Well, there's thoughts that Morgan was the one who basically paid for um, Tesla's living expenses late in life, basically did him a dirty. Um, but, you know, J.P. Morgan was certainly, it's, it's what's so amazing of, from all of this is when we talk about people like J.P. Morgan or Westinghouse or, or um, Edison, Edison or, yeah, or, you. or uh, <laughs> you know, Tesla, we're talking about people. And when you say there's these who these people are, they're more than just like, hey, you know, it's like saying Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. They certainly were such a force in moving society forward. They, they, they became icons in, in, in themselves. But Tesla made so many of these things that then got taken by Edison and Marconi and all of these other people. that You said do him a dirty. Uh, that happened to Tesla so many times. I, I you can imagine. Well, who, who created the World Wide Web and then who made it accessible to the world? There, there's, that's the whole point. The Department of Defense had didn't they have they had something to do with that that's the internet not the world wide web okay. but anyway we take welcome we, to the first day of my class that's right so what we end up learning is that whoever invents something doesn't necessarily bring it to it's it's the entrepreneur who, who brings it to the, the the world you know um xerox may have created the mouse but it mm -hmm. was apple who brought it to the world and made it what it is valid so, so we get, we get a lot of That's things. That's day that, two of my class, though. The okay. mouse is day two. But a lot of inventions. I don't know why I'm going down this. Way. A lot of inventions just sit there 
are useless. No one knows how to use them. But all of a sudden, you know, Pam or Steve shows up and goes, oh, the, the world could use this in a different way. That's where the business part of this science comes in. And that's the part where Tesla did not understand how the world works. Yeah, that's that's a good point that is being made in the middle of this funny book. Oh. Well, you know, what's a comic. We, only, we have to learn something. <laughs> learn something? <laughs> Who says that? <laughs> All right, so I do have a question for you. Rob Rassel has relationships with Annie and Maya, these two women, separately, but I mean, they're, they're relationships in parallel universes. And so one of the questions I immediately came to is, is Smith suggesting that um, the connection to particular people is universal? Because, I mean, he ultimately runs into these people in parallel universes, and while they are different people, they do form, I mean, intimate relationships and truly have connections. This is a question that we've brought up in so many of these stories lately because we keep going to these time travel and slash romance stories, not slash fiction, by the way, slash romance stories that we've been reading for, what, four books now? And yeah, I do think that Jeff Smith is saying that there is an intimate connection between the the entities that are these people, even on separate, different parallel worlds. What do you think, Pam? Sure, absolutely. And we saw this again with the, all the, our time travelers, and we saw it in recursion, we saw it in flash forward. You know, this, this notion that if you end up in a different world, the first thing you're going to do is try and find your soulmate or, mm -hmm. or close, close contacts, whoever those might be. I, I absolutely believe in this. I really believe that if I was stuck in a parallel universe, the first thing I would do is make sure that I found my wife and my kids and not the dog because I don't like the dog very much. What about the pride of cats? <laughs> the cats. I, it's, a, it's a pride. It's a I'm, whole pride. It's a pride of it, cats. In an alternative universe, there are not a pride of cats living in my house. <laughs> I choose to believe that that is true. That's why I'm in the basement. They're not allowed down here. <laughs> I think that this is true. I think it's universal. And, and let's compare this because visually, uh, so both uh, From Hell and Rassel are both comic presentations. Certainly, uh, Eddie Campbell's um, use of the anatomy of humans and sexual situations is such more much much different than uh jeff smith whose audience um these are adult situations here too so that we mm -hmm. need to make sure we but he does the art in such a lovely tasteful way that i feel that there is a love relationship between Rassel and annie and maya i think he loves both of them maybe even equally, even though some universes Annie is there and some universes Maya is there. And in some universes we find in these chapters that both of those humans, her name wasn't Maya in this part. Uma. This was Uma. No, Uma. This was Uma. But we still find that that personage was still there. Ooh. Uma is Portuguese. English, it's, it, the, the um, term would be one, like one person. 
Interesting. Ooh. Ooh, that was quick Google right there. Nice, quick Google work. But anyway, Uma, the, the, Oprah. Uma, Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the, the, the idea that Uma and, and Maya are the same, the same person, different realities. Hmm. Mm, and Uma hmm. means one in um, Portuguese. I mean, in hmm. English. In Portuguese, that's the definition, is one mm. in English. Mm, the one. Um, Uma, for for our Maya slash Uma, was where Rob Rassel had the affair in the past with his scientist buddy's uh, wife. And then Annie is the sex worker that he also has a relationship with, who ultimately, at the end of this we, we find out is the adventure. We're going to on the adventure together. This will eventually, I guess, play out. What can I say? We want to get to the metaphor of St. George here. This whole section is called the fire of St. George. And do you guys, are you familiar with the, the myth of St. George? This is an English saint, the, the saint who uh, slayed the fire breathing dragon. Welcome to religion. <laughs> Religion that has dragons in it is good religion. St. George slayed a fire-breathing dragon. They name their project the St. George Project. They are working on the attempt to understand the fire that is all of this multi-universe stuff and understand it into submission. I love the metaphor here. It's interesting that he would choose this. I, I when, when you put that in there, and I, you know, I was reading. It, I said it's much easier to do Prometheus, you know, stealing, stealing knowledge from the gods, basically mm -hmm. stealing the wheels of the universe and bringing it to the humans. So we get the modern Prometheus. Okay. We get we get the reference to Frankenstein in this section, but no, not the book, the movie. I, I love how Jeff Smith absolutely laid it out for us that we are not talking about that book. We are talking about the 1931 Frankenstein movie. But that's the modern Prometheus. That's the the modernization of the modern Prometheus of Prometheus. Is wow. that the, that's the subtitle of it, right? Is that's the subtitle of the book. Is oh. Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus. Yes, sir. And I think that subtitle really indicates how much more complex the novel's representation of the monster is than, than the movie version. Because it's not about the monster. It's about the doctor. Frankenstein is not the name of the monster. So in, in the movie, in the movie, the visuals that they end up using for the scientist, Frankenstein, is basically Tesla. I mean, do I guess you could create an argument, I don't know how strong it would be, that the Frankenstein scientist in the movie is Tesla and the, and the uh, lightning and all that other stuff that brings the monster to life certainly plays into the danger of uh, Tesla's uh, ideas, I guess it could be. And by connecting those two things, Jeff Smith is really raising that question of the mad scientist, right? And so... Like, how do we frame mad scientists in our world? And then is there something underneath? Like when we call someone a mad scientist, like Frankenstein, like Tesla, are we then ignoring something really powerful about the work and the ideas that they've had as being outside of, of their time or place? Tesla needed a higher brand manager. That's what he needed. 
not understanding the world, right? So absolutely. So. Yeah, yeah the, the idea of saying that a scientist is mad, that what he is working on, he or she, is working on... It's is, always he. Where's the... <laughs> show me a mad scientist who's a woman. <laughs> okay. Know, it's, it's not a trope, though. You know what I'm saying? Like, the trope of the mad scientist yeah? is a very masculine one. Okay, fine. When the scientist is <laughs> noted as, as being as mad... You, as you dismiss her. <laughs> 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 oh, I tease, I tease. As the mad scientist is noted as being mad, that takes away from the science. The science must be invalid because it is so far outside the norm that we can't utilize this science. And I think that that is something that might have been said about Tesla, that he was so outside of that norm that he couldn't be right. Well, think about how hard Edison, the lengths Edison, Thomas Edison, went to discredit Tesla's ideas. Mm -hmm. So I can't remember. One did AC, one did DC. Mm -hmm. um, and so what What was Edison doing? Going around electrocuting elephants. Mm -hmm. Say, oh, Tesla's ideas are really dangerous. Although Tesla's would work better, uh, more efficiently. I mean, mm -hmm. Tesla looked, used the Chicago World's Fair to, to show what he was able to do. Once again, mm -hmm. let's bring it back to our book club as we... Uh, Talk a little bit about this. <laughs> it was interesting that it was brought back to the Chicago World's Fair in Jeff Smith's work that he did say, look at what we've done in the book club. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for acknowledging us in the past. The discrediting of science in order to make money, because that's that's what we're talking about is the business here. That's the part that Tesla didn't get. Whether he needed a brand manager or he needed some business level, we've talked about this in the past. When, when artists don't have business sense, they lose, right. even if they have wonderful work. They could be. And, and I think there's the, the conspiracy of this, that if you could tap in the universe, then you may not need fossil fuels. You may not mm -hmm. need other ways of doing things. You're it's, saying that if we it, find it, alternative energy in 2021, the fossil fuel industry will be upset with us? <laughs> well, what I'm, I'm suggesting is that that's the conspiracy, that they, you had an infant industry that they could potentially make a lot of money, which they did make a lot of money. Energy is, is very can be very profitable. Mm -hmm. um but for certain people well yeah the, for, the, the saudis well i mean on, on the grand scheme of things we're now pulling oil from sand here in the united states mm -hmm. so we, we certainly have created at least for the um uh, north american group we, we we certainly have gotten to a point where we can export oil mm -hmm. so from a you know if you think of it from a de defense point of view how amazing that is if you think of it from a climate change point of view or, uh, you know, something on the future, then this is just, you know, a temporary solution till we can find another solution. And, uh, you know, we look at alternatives and things of that nature that hopefully will lessen our dependency of, of, um, of destroying energy sources, you know, potential, uh, potential challenges there. Anyway, I, I, I think that that, that, is, that is one of the, the thoughts on it was, hey, if you tap into the wheels of the, of the universe, that all of a sudden 
not not that everybody will have it. There's just not there's not a profit motive uh, at that point. There's not a, a profit to be made there. Kinga Forrester is a female mad scientist. There you go, Steve. That's postmodern, Steve. Yes, it is. It is. It is definitely. It is definitely taking the trope and switching it for a postmodern reasoning. Absolutely, you're right. Which just proves the point. Anyway, and, and, and all bad people are now from England, right? All the bad guys are now from England because yes. they like that British accent. So I think that Smith actually really taps into a lot of very common metaphors, and I love this conversation about Saint George versus Prometheus. I think he comes up, Sal is a big user of metaphors, including really mixed ones. Um, when he's talking about parallel universes, he says they're like multiple universes stacked one on top of the other, like some little sugar cake. And then <laughs> in like the next moment, he says, oh yeah, it's just like a hall of mirrors, which is just like an amazing mix because a hall of mirrors is pretty terrifying, right? Especially mm -hmm. with all these little stacked cakes in it. And then Sal also talks to Rasley. He says, what was the light bulb that went off when you started this tech? How did you crack the final code? And those are two completely different notions of epistemology, right? That idea of the single scientist being illuminated, having this moment of genius, this moment of illumination, or the idea that there is a code, everything is already known, you just have to get the right cipher to open it up. Two totally opposite metaphors, and but they work really, really well together. I was quite delighted by Sal's um, really interesting use of metaphors throughout this. Oh God, yeah, that is that's awesome. Because you're right, this 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 idea of you become illuminated. Um, now you have the knowledge um, versus moment. versus this idea. In fact, on some level, you you may have created the knowledge. I don't know. It's, Right, you, you're discovering it. You are actively trying to discover it as opposed to having that epiphany where it just comes to you. Mm -hmm. And then I think all of that works really, really nicely with the maze, that recurring image of the maze. And I thought it was so hilarious slash great when Rob is hanging out with Uma and she says, the maze in Native American art is about life and choices. And then she goes on for several panels to give what we might imagine as a super helpful lecture, but Rassel isn't listening. So that whole lecture is just represented by blank speech bubbles. <laughs> so we, the reader, don't get access to this information, which I presume would be very, very helpful in understanding how knowledge gets constructed. And again, once again, like tapping into these ways of seeing that we can see that they're there. We just can't see what's in the bubble. Let, let, me, let me ask you: Is that he? He the thought bubbles came because he's kind of checking her out, isn't he? He's not listening. Is is basically whatever thoughts he's having, we are not privy to. But he is not listening to what she's saying, uh -huh. which is definitely important. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she's just about to tell us about life and choices. Oh, <laughs> which is thematic. And and Jeff Smith is is brilliant here by not revealing the piece that we need, maybe the key that we need to understanding the story. That's something that the graphic novel can do that a narrative would have a real hard time with. Yes, we would see or hear his thoughts as opposed to he's listening to her, but here we can graphically see that. Brilliant. And I think it kind of tapped into 
this notion, I, Chip, I think you're totally right that he might have been just checking her out. I'm not sure what, what he was thinking about because we don't know. But this one of the themes of this novel comes back to other things we've read lately, which is just like Sherlock Holmes or just like Henry in The Time Traveler's Wife from Audrina Finegger, Russell is so overwhelmed by his perspective on the world that he self-medicates using alcohol, sex, drugs, gambling. And so that's a sort of interesting notion. And I'm, I'm wondering what you guys think about that idea of portraying these vices as fulfilling the needs of an extraordinary man who could travel through time or dimensions or in Sherlock Holmes's case, epistemological conundrums, instead of thinking of those vices as kind of a sad refuge of everyday people. It's a, I don't know, it's an interesting move to me. Well, they could be both, couldn't uh-huh. they? They, could, they certainly could be. Is it the uh, enjoyment of the journey that allows you to go and experience these vices? Or is it a distraction from what your goals are? Or is it uh, the trap of life to, to be, be stuck in these vices? I mean, you basically, it could be any one of those, depending upon the individual, couldn't it? Depends on your perspective. If you are the protagonist of your story and you see your fatal flaw and you can identify it and make the change, then that's a good narrative. If you are not the protagonist of your story, if you are a bit player, then it's just sad that you are, what, wasting your time with these vices? Wow. Wow. This is a deep comic book. And, and, and so, which, I mean, for, for Russell, what is it? I mean, we've got this guy self-medicating because it, it's painful to go through these alternative realities. Um, literally, and, not even figuratively. It right. is literally painful. Yeah, it takes, it, you know, he talks about it takes sometimes two to three days to recover mm-hmm. from it. And how does he initially do it? He basically goes to the bar and, you know, what is he has he has a shot of, like, bourbon... Uh, a beer and um, uh, a, a vodka martini. Mm-hmm. One bourbon, one scotch, one beer. And no. then, and then, <laughs> in the first part, he says, "Line them up again." I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's that is that's pretty amazing. In in this this part of our story, he's given a chip, which is basically a setup for a trap, because now he's going to sit in the vices for a little while, and it allows them to know where he is and, and basically come after him. And how interesting. You said chip, and I was like, no, he didn't get a chip. That's the lizard man that's got the chip. This is a <laughs> different chip. There's a gambling chip that he's being used for tracking, not the chip in the man's arm that's used for tracking. Hmm, that's an interesting mixed metaphor. I'm, I'm going to throw something else out there. Just think about it. Sal's equipment that he uses is modern, sleek, and all that stuff. What is what is uh, Robert's Russell? It's got Native American imagery. It's rudimentary compared to it. And we see in the storyline here, there is a moment in one of the panels where we see that Native American mask hanging on the wall of the scientist's office. And we go, aha, he just yanked that mask off the wall. It's decorative, but he's using it in this way. And he discusses how they the unknown, unnamed they, have updated his design for Sal's engines. Hmm. Very Tesla. That's very Tesla. He designed it and somebody else made it 
better, updated it, made it sleeker, sold it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but all right, so we also learned that Sal's machine is more advanced in the sense that he can choose his location. Robert Rassel's version of the same time traveling machine um, is not as specific on where it can go. Was it- but he can track the lizard man across the barrier we see that uh-huh. that that he is tracking him he can find him and the lizard man says i'll have to remember that so that's another MacGuffin in this whole story we haven't did we even talk about the the, the big MacGuffin in this well, the, chapter we have not steve you want you want to tell us what it is the Lost Journals of Tesla. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, there are these diaries that existed in real, uh, the real world outside of this comic book, and they were taken when Tesla died. And that's a conspiracy theory about where are those writings. So Tesla, at the end of his life, was a broken man. He, his Colorado um, experiment had failed. He lost his funding. Funding, he ended up moving, I think it was New York. I'm throwing New York out there. He was ultimately given a hotel room, and that's where his papers were. And when he eventually died, the story is that some federal group came in, uh, representing the United States, basically took all of his papers, and they do not know where those, those his work is. So his work is kind of lost. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, so in our story, Robert Rassel has these papers, and Sal, Amander, the Lizard Man, wants them because the group that he's working with wants them. All right. So let's let's talk a little bit about this. Is a comic. This is different than a book. Comics can do some things that books can't do, and movies can't do. But this is a um, comics are a visual storytelling device, and art styles certainly make a difference. And when you're looking at the modern characters of Rassel, Rob, and Salamander, they've got sort of a, they're, they're not quite full human size. They're like, I don't know, five, six size or whatever. They've got bushy hair. They've got sort of a cartoony look. Mm-hmm. But when we get these flashbacks, they take on a more um, conservative look, maybe a realistic look. The jaws are square. The, the bodies are taller. Mm-hmm. I mean, they certainly have a very different visual storytelling device. And I didn't really uh, think about it until you know, I was rereading it. And I was going, oh, look at that. There was an art style change. Mm-hmm. What do we think about that? I think of the Spider-Man Into the Multiverse movie that came out, what, a year and a half ago, where every different universe had a completely different art style to show visually the difference between the different worlds. Here we have the difference between the flashback and the current situation. And Jeff Smith is very adept at making sure we understand that this is a flashback by giving us that visual cue. And then even more adept on the paper copy, we have two panels facing pages where we have the difference between the the body of this man before and after all of this adventure that's that's great narrative that's great storytelling with a visual style we get these gothic tropes in this shift in art style as well though right pam 
Well, yeah. And I actually wanted to close out by thinking about the two Gothic tropes that sort of bookend this part two of, of the narrative. So we've got that mysterious ship in the beginning, which like is a great story of this sort of maritime adventure of like parallel universe travel gone wrong. And then we have that creepy little girl with the zombie eyes and the tattered clothing who just keeps showing up. And we close this portion on her. So what do we make of these sort of Gothic elements that appear in this otherwise fairly straight science fiction kind of story? The the visually different is I, I, yeah, Mm -hmm. she's certainly a scary, I mean, it's like a scary movie. You've got this girl who, little girl, let's make sure we say that, who's got this bizarre look. She can't talk. She's basically, mm-hmm. she's like the ghost of Christmas future. You know, mm-hmm. basically points. And, and Russell understands where he's to go. He understands what she's trying to say. What does she represent? I, I don't mm-hmm. know. It's just, it, right now, it's just an unknown. She is a revealer of, of information. But we're at the beginning of that reveal. We, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Go, in this, go in this house. Find <laughs> this information. Okay. That idea of a child who has much more knowledge than they should have for their years, that's a terrifying trope, right? The little, like, the super knowing kid. Ooh, because it plays with our sense of temporality. Like, it takes time to build up the sort of experience that an adult has. And if it's in a child's body, well, then that means that our notions of temporality are all wrong. And so there's Ooh. epistemologically terrifying as well as psychologically you know we want to protect the innocence of children and we don't want them to know these things that are too big for their little developing brains but i think the temporal piece is even more uncanny especially in a multiple universe situation (laughs) where she has knowledge that she shouldn't have in this universe it seems to indicate that she has acquired a different knowledge maybe from a different set of uh universe situations and we'll see we'll see where this little girl takes us and and her her, she's visually looked at as her 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 head is askew She's got big eyes. Yeah. She is dressed in like tattered clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly zombie-ish. Yes. There, there, there's something that is incredibly disturbing and something that, that she is going to reveal something to us. Mm-hmm. The good storytelling. Good visual narrative here. Wonderful. Definitely. So... We're ready to move on to Act 3 now, right? We're ready. We, we have all the parts put together. We're halfway through this book. So what is the title for Act 3, Chip? So Act 3, we're going to read chapters 8, 9, 10, 11. So it's four uh, chapters. Romance at the Speed of Light. Hmm. Well, you know, does hmm. that have a Stephen Hawking type statement there, Steve? There is certainly a Stephen Hawking uh, speed of light and the the theory of everything, trying to find a unified equation, taking Matthew's equations and Einstein's E equals MC squared and trying to unify them like Stephen Hawking did for most of his life and 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 didn't. Uh, spoilers, he, he didn't find a, a single uh, equation to... <laughs> 
make sense of the whole universe. Uh, maybe we will. Or maybe we, maybe that's just a human brain thing where we're trying so desperately to make sense of it all. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. What do you think, Pam? Have we made enough sense of it all from now? Well, I think we've made enough sense to know that we know nothing. So I look forward to reading on. All right, that's there's a, the solution. It, we that, know nothing. That's right. Isn't that the answer to life? Is that once this is wisdom, right? That we we know nothing. There we go. <laughs> that's the end of the show. We know nothing. You and should have we, started and, and we with die that. Alone and we die alone. So go with that for another week. <laughs> Could have saved people forty minutes of listening to this if we had just said at the beginning. We know nothing. Thanks, Pam. <laughs> We would love to hear from you. What do you know? Do you know more than nothing? Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-410-4867. Our website is sandwiches at irregularhours.com. Our email is sandwiches at irregularhours at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Irregular Hours. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chuck Hasselbarn. And I'm Pam Bedore. We'll see you in the future. Or in another dimension. And still no number.